Good morning, everyone. If you have a Bible, open up to... <laughs> you think I should, have, I should have our opening text in mind? Uh, Galatians 5. <laughs> Galatians chapter 5. If you're using one of our pew Bibles, that's going to be on page, uh, I think it's 916. If you're visiting with us and you don't happen to have a Bible, I want to encourage you to take the, the Pew Bible home as a gift from us to you. We'd love to make sure that you have a copy of God's Word to read whenever you'd like to. It is a dreary holiness indeed that is merely resisting sin. The joy of holiness is found in having heard a sweeter song. Grace is the work of the Holy Spirit, so transforming our desires that knowing Jesus becomes sweeter than illicit sex, sweeter than money and what it can buy, sweeter than every fruitless joy. Grace, grace is God satisfying our souls with his son so that we are ruined for anything else i love that definition grace is god satisfying our souls in jesus christ so we're ruined for anything else my friends that quote pretty much sums up how i pray for this church that you are just ruined for anything else that doesn't have Jesus Christ at the center stage of that thing that you're seeking life from. How encouraging is that to hear that one of your main elders is praying that ultimately all your joys will turn to dust unless Jesus is at the heart of that. Right? I hope that is encouragement, and I don't pray that because I'm a buzzkill or, or because I feel that being a great Christian means just this, this dour Christian face and it's all about religious duty and obedience. Not at all. Those of you who personally know me know that I love life. Man, I love getting the maximum pleasure from life. I want to have satisfaction from this life. But the thing is, I know in my bones... As a matter of fact, it's not just something I know. It is a fact that only way to have that life is if that life is orbiting around the Son of God. That's just not my opinion. That Jesus says that. John chapter 10, verse 10, he says, I have come to give them life and that they might have it abundantly. My favorite verse in the Bible, you should know it by now. The psalmist says, Lord, you make known to me the paths of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand, pleasures forevermore. Wow, guys, if you can find me a guarantee in life better than that, I'll give my life to that instead. Wouldn't you? Here's the challenge, though. We can't. The world is trying, but they can't find that. And I, like you, I hear and I read and I see the, the celebrities and the influencers of our lives, the powerfully connected, the politicians, the rich and the famous. I watch them, too, from a distance. And, and to be sure, they are richer than I am, right? And to be sure, they're more powerful than I am. They, they are uh, uh, um, 
beautifuler, beautifuler, better looking than I am. They are cooler than I am. Well, I don't know. I have a sweet motorcycle. So on that one, maybe, maybe not so much, right? And, and then the reason I say this, it, it, but I can say this, is that they're not happier than I am. They're not more satisfied. They're not more fulfilled than I am. And I'm not saying that to put them down as if I don't wish them well. I do. I mean, we, I want people to flourish. I want people to have life. Uh, that couldn't be further from the truth. But I think the, the thing I'm trying to contrast here is that the world doesn't have the thing that they're looking for. I could have called this sermon, instead of just fruit of the Spirit, because that's what we're talking about, I could have called it the health of holiness. The health of holiness, because really that's what I'm trying to contrast here. It's something that we all want in life. The world is desperately trying to find this, but they confuse flourishing and, and, and health spiritually, socially, emotionally, psychologically, and joy and life. They confuse it with things like money and, and status and security and sex and power and material goods and, and houses and swag and fame and influence, always consuming, never satisfied, always uh, attaining but never arriving, always seeking but never finding. In contrast, this morning, as you can see at the top of your bulletin, just, just the name of our topic, I hope in your mind, elicits an entirely different emotional uh, impulse. Fruit, right? Fruit. When you think of good fruit, right? You know, the, the images that come to your mind, when you have a picture of fresh strawberries or grapes or, or berries with beads of water just kind of dripping down the sides or the, the sound, the crunch of a crisp apple when you bite into it or the satisfaction of, of just gushing watermelon, not the mealy kind, right? But the, the kind that just cracks open where you bite it and the juices, juices flow out. You get the image of satisfaction, you get the image of health, you get the image of strength, contentment, fruit. That's what we all want in life. And you know the metaphor. You don't have to go to church to understand the metaphor of, of fruit being something that's good. And we all want it. And the great thing is the Bible presents this vivid word picture entitled the, kind of, the fruit of the Spirit to describe this, maybe even more to entice us. And that's what our subject is this morning. And like last week, I'm going to ask and answer three questions. Number one, what is the fruit of the Spirit? Number two, what is the relationship between the gifts and the fruit of the Spirit, of the Holy Spirit? And then number three, how can we have this fruit in our lives? So let's ask and answer each of these questions one at a time. Number one, what is the fruit of the Holy Spirit? Now, in some ways, friends, uh, the fruit of the Holy Spirit is, is an even more central evidence of the new covenant that the gospel brings in, uh, a more central evidence of the Holy Spirit's work in our lives than even the gifts of the Holy Spirit because the fruit of the Holy Spirit has a direct bearing on our hearts, on our character, while the gifts of the Holy Spirit, as we talked about last week, was mostly related to our abilities. While the gifts of the Holy Spirit are related to the things that we do, the fruit of the Holy Spirit is related to who we are. And that really is the engine of the gospel. That is really what Christianity is about, changing us in who we are. The things that we do come from the fact of who we are. 
Remember the prophets, we've been talking about them because they talked about this new covenant. Here again is Jeremiah. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Ezekiel expands that even more. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I'll give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit within you. I think this is something we just got to realize. That at the core of, of the concept of Christianity is not, although the prophets talk about walking in his commands and rules, the reason we do that is because God changed our hearts. Right? If you were here in our study of Galatians, I think it's chapter 2, I made the point that the life of Christ is impossible without the life of Christ. You cannot live the Christian life without the Christian life already within you. It's not about do's and don'ts. It's about having a new heart, a new spirit. And the only way that happens is that God in his grace gives it to us. Now, the concept of fruit and all the corresponding health and, and even the process of knowing that fruit takes a while, it's slow, you need to be patient, all that was very common to them because they lived in an agricultural society much more than we do, right, when we need fruit. You go to Ralph's or Trader Joe's and you just buy it, right? So we don't appreciate this metaphor as much. Hopefully you will by the end of today. And the phrase itself, the fruit of the Spirit, only occurs one time in the New Testament. Now, the concept appears many times, but this phrase, fruit of the Spirit, only appears in Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 and 23. So let me read that to you now. You should all be there by now. Paul says this, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. So here we have Paul uh, writing in the book of Galatians talking about these, these nine things that are evident in a Christian's life that can only be there because the Spirit of God changed our hearts, not because we decided to become morally religious and reform ourselves, but because God changed us and our desire to please him comes from an obedience or response to that grateful work of God. Now, how do we think of these nine, nine different things? categories of fruit. John Stott, a great British theologian, says that, that, that really we can see these in, in one of two ways. And I'll introduce you to the first one is three sets of three. Three sets of three. So John Stott would say the first three have to do with a Christian's posture to God. Well, it makes a lot of sense when you think about it. He writes, a Christian's first love is to be toward God. And when that is his first love, the Christian's chief Joy is to see God's glory. And, and then his deepest peace will be between he and God. So the first three of these amazing fruit that we see here in Galatians 5 is about our disposition, how we're relating to God. Stott goes on to say that there's a second set of, a second set of three here, and they deal with our social virtues. It's not a horizontal manward kind of thing like the first, uh, like the, uh, well, the first three are vertical Godward, and the second three are horizontal manward. And so there they are. They're with patience. Patience, the capacity to, the ca capacity to bear with annoyances and to endure delays to your own timetable. And that's really important in our culture where even my daughter is trying to schedule things to get on my calendar, right? And she made a, she made a snarky comment to me because she wanted to have breakfast, and 
and I couldn't. She dropped the zero period class and she had more time. I says, honey, I, I can't have breakfast on Thursday because I got something to do. She says, well, can you, can we, can you schedule time for your daughter, right? <laughs> we live in a world where everything is timed out and sometimes a result of that is we become more efficient, but we become a lot less patient because so much of life happens in between the things we have scheduled. So patience is a good one. Putting up with the annoyances and things that delay our schedule, right? Kindness is the second fruit. Kindness is love dealing with the faults of others. I like that. Kindness is love dealing with the faults of others. Can you see someone else's point of view? Can you, can you understand their struggle? And, and here's the thing. When we're not patient, we're not likely to be able to do that. But you see how these things kind of work hand in hand. When you have patience... You're able more to see things from other people's perspectives. When we don't have patience, we're just consumed or concerned with our own schedules, our own activities. And so these fruit work together. And then this third fruit, talking about how we relate to others, is goodness. It's not talking about perfection or sinlessness. It's really just talking about an integrity, right? Goodness, that, that you, have an, you, you have integrity and uprightness of heart. So Stott says the first three are vertical, that they're Godward. The second set of three are horizontal. They're social virtues. They're, they're, they're manward. And then the last set of three just seem to describe attributes within the individual themselves. Faithfulness. Describing the reality of the man or, or the Christian man or the Christian woman. This is kind of basic. Do you keep your word? Is your yes your yes? Or do people have to keep following up with you because you said you're going to do something, but you didn't, and they got to keep kind of on you? Or are you someone that can be trusted? Is your word your bond? Are you like your heavenly father that way? Because when he says something, he does something, right? And you never have to doubt it. Is your word your bond? Are you faithful? Are you dependable? Gentleness, kind of, kind of, uh, you know, uh, it, it, it used to be the word meekness, and that wasn't as, I didn't like that word as much either. Gentleness doesn't seem much better because we associate that with kind of softness and those things, but really the root word means strength under power, right? So meek, Moses was the most meek man in the world. A horse is meek. What we mean is there's a lot of strength, but that strength is put under power. That's what gentleness, the idea there. To put it in ways we might wrap our minds around, gentleness, are you secure enough in who you are not to have to demand your rights? Are you strong enough to not have to pretend to be so strong? Can you actually admit and reveal your weaknesses? Are you argumentative? Are you defensive? Are you abrupt? Are you rude? Do you let others go ahead of you? Do you think, think of others first? Or do you pretend that you don't see that person trying to get in on the 405 at rush hour, right? Do you see them? Are you kind enough? Can you be patient with their annoyance? Yes, they should have put their blinker on, but they didn't. That's okay, right? Can you be gentle? Third, or lastly, self-control. This is one of the cardinal virtues of the ancient Greeks. Even the Greeks said self-control, they called it temperance, was a virtue to cultivate do you control your appetites, right? whatever they might be? I don't just mean physically for food or drink, but sex. Do you control the things that drive you? Do you control your emotions, anger, jealousy, fear? Or do your appetites and your emotions control you? Right? Friends, one of the strongest 
and simplest testimonies that we modern Christians can give to the world in a culture that's just indulging itself into addictive oblivion, self-destructive self-indulgence, or heart-hardening fear is to have self-control. Is to have self-control. Whether it's my anger or my temper, to have self-control. The fruit of the Spirit has these three dimensions to it. As you look at that list in Galatians 5, there is an upward relationship towards God, there is an outward relation or outward dimension towards others, and there is an inward dimension towards ourselves. And all these are fruit of the Spirit. They're naturally produced in the lives of a man or woman who, as Paul says, is led by the Spirit. It's no wonder that in Galatians 5, verses 18 and 23, Paul can say, against these there is no law. When you have this in your heart, and this is the way you operate, you don't need external laws telling you what to do or not to do because you automatically want to do that which is right. It's a new heart, a changed heart. Well, that's one way we can look at this list. And it's a nice way to look at it. I think there's a lot to commend it. Three sets of three, upward, outward, inward, makes a lot of sense. But there's another way to look at that. And you could say that these are all, these are eight different outworkings of one thing. After all, Paul calls them the fruit of the Spirit. He doesn't call them the fruits of the Spirit. Remember, I talked to you guys, even down to letters matter, right? Paul's saying this is the fruit of the Spirit. In other words, the fruit of the Holy Spirit in the life of a person who's now under Christ's reign is love. And all the things that are flowing out from this gentleness, kindness, self-control, all these is love working itself out in the individual's life. It's not working of love. D.L. Moody in his book, Notes from My Bible, says, Joy is love exalting. Peace is love reposing. Patience is love untiring. Kindness is love enduring. Goodness is love in action. Faithfulness is love on the battlefield. Gentleness is love under discipline. And self-control is love in training. When you look at this list, friends, we've got to ask ourselves, do you, do, you, do you have this fruit in your life? Do we have this fruit in your life? Do you have peace? I mean, the kind of peace where you don't need to watch Netflix, listen to podcasts or music, Play video games, watch sports, do whatever it is you do to distract yourself. Can you just sit there and be alone with yourself? Because you have peace. Can you endure with others? Or you just don't have the patience for it. You fly off the handle. Can you control yourself? More to the point, does the spirit control you? Or do the opinions of others control you? The desire to have their approval controls you. Your anger controls you. Your temper controls you. Your temptations control you. What is controlling you? Do life's demands and pressures control you? If that's the case, wouldn't you like to be different? If you're tired of other people's approval and their opinions and, and the demands and pressures, your own anger, if you're tired of that controlling you, wouldn't you want to be different? Because that's what the fruit of the Spirit is. We'll get, to, we'll get to answering that question in a little bit. Right now, we're just trying to answer the question, what is the fruit of the Spirit? Right? It's the outworking of love. Second question, what is the relationship 
between the gifts and fruit of the Holy Spirit. Now, if you were here last week, I didn't actually finish my sermon. I, I came out, I had four questions to ask and answer. What are the gifts of the Holy Spirit? What are the purpose of the gifts of the Holy Spirit? Uh, how do I find my gifts? And why should I use my gifts? And so uh, I had four points. I didn't get to the last point because the last point I had three points under that. And, and I can't get to that now. But, but quickly, the three points were well, when you use your gifts, you build up the body of Christ. You make the bride of Christ more beautiful. And the third one I do want to unpack is that you receive a blessing yourself personally. Right? Because, and I want to talk about that last point because it's tied into a little bit of what we're talking about last week into this morning. We should use our gifts because you yourself get blessed by them. Friends, when you use the gifts that God has given you, that has made you with, you feel alive. When you use the gifts that God has given you, you feel alive. Eric Little, a kind of an unknown name these days, but... Uh, he, he was a, a Scotsman. He was actually called the Flying Scotsman because he was an Olympic a runner as well who also became a missionary. And he, he won his heat. It was the, made, his life was made famous in the 1981 Oscar-winning film Chariots of Fire. Eric, at the 24 Olympics, said, ooh, uh-huh. Uh, he's a 100-meter dash guy. He says, I'm not running my heat because that's on the Lord's Day and uh, it's the Sabbath. I'm not going to be doing this. Now, some of you are like, what? What a legalist, right? Because, you know, you go to the beach on the Sabbath if you want, but not Eric. He's like, uh-uh. I'm at the Olympics. My heat's on a Sunday. That's the Lord's Day. I want to be in church. I ain't running it. So they put him in the 400-meter dash. I don't know if they would do that now, but they put him in the 400-meter. He's a 100-meter runner, and guess what happened? He took the gold in that. The point is, Eric Little said this. After his career in the Olympics, he went on to become a missionary to China and unfortunately died in a Japanese internment camp in 1945 at the close of World War II. But here's the quote I want you to zero in on. He said, I was made to run, and when I run, I feel God's pleasure. I love that. You, you were thinking I was going to give you something really spiritually and deep, right? But he said, I was made to run, and when I run, I feel God's pleasure. Friends, just as a horse loves to run, a fish loves to swim, and a bird loves to fly, a Christian loves to use his gifts for the benefit of others. Assuming, that is, that there is some fruit of the Spirit that's being born in him that makes him want to go in this direction. So what we need to do is address a little bit about the relationship between gifts of the Spirit and fruit of the Spirit because they're not the same and we can easily confuse the two, right? The gifts of the Spirit, as I said earlier, have to do with spiritual capabilities, what one is able to do for the Lord, whereas the fruit of the Spirit has to do with spiritual character, what one is in the Lord. And friends, we'll all have differing gifts because the need of the hour uh, that the Holy Spirit wants to use us in is always going to be different, but we will all have the same fruit because we're all being conformed to the same image and likeness of Jesus Christ. The tricky thing is, however, you can have a lot of gifts and not have the grace. Now, the grace is the, the Puritans would call the fruit of the Spirit a, gra a grace, and, and they made a distinction between gifts and grace, right, the fruit of the Spirit. And so they would say, you can have lots of gifts, but that doesn't mean you have grace. And if you look in the scriptures, you see a lot of that happening. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, Numbers 22 to 27, yet Balaam the prophet, tons of gifts. 
He was so well known that pagan kings, uh, Moab, the king of Moab, hired Balaam to curse his own people, the, the Israelites, and Balaam was a mercenary for hire. I call him a prophet for a prophet. Clearly gifted, but he didn't have the grace of God. He didn't have the fruit of the Spirit in him. King Saul's another example, right? A leader, born leader, charismatic, literally head and shoulders of on everyone else, and yet he didn't have fruit in his life. Samson, who in the scripture was more gifted or more called than a man like Samson, but he had little fruit. So just because you have gifts doesn't mean you have grace. Just because you have the gifts doesn't mean you have the fruit. And that was kind of when you think about the Corinthian problem, if you're familiar with the book of Corinthians. They looked at their gifts and assumed we were mature, they were mature, but that wasn't the case at all. I once knew a, knew a preacher, and it was said of him that he was so good in the pulpit that whenever he got to the pulpit, nobody wanted him to get out. But when he was out of the pulpit, he was so wicked, nobody wanted him to get back in. Just because you're gifted doesn't mean you have the grace. The, the, the gifts of the Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit are not the same. But the gifts get all the attention, don't they? The gifts get all the attention. They're the spectacular thing. They're like the whitewater rapids that you have to just notice them, whereas fruit of the Spirit is like a deep current under the water surface. And you may not even know that it's operating there. So we have to get clear in our minds that you may have lots of gifts, but don't be satisfied with that if there's no fruit. Conversely, you're bearing a lot of fruit. Don't worry if you're not tremendously gifted. Gifts can be spectacular. We, we like watching gifts being opened, like Christmas morning. Watching fruit grow, not so spectacular, right? It's a slow process. Very slow. My wife bought me an avocado plant for my birthday or Christmas, and I'm all excited because I can make the road heaver famous, world famous guacamole. And she's like, well, it's going to take two or three years <laughs> to, for avocado to grow. Did you know this? So it's been sitting in my backyard, and I never go out with a cup of coffee like, yeah, grow. I just, <laughs> it looks the same as when she got it for me. But friends, here's the thing about fruit that's so important. The fruit of the Holy Spirit creates qualities of character within an individual that cannot simply be united apart from the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. Let me say that again. The Holy Spirit, the fruit of the Holy Spirit can create in us qualities of character without which his transforming power could never coexist. Let me illustrate what I mean by that. You know, scripture talks about speak, we can be people who speak the truth in love. But apart from the Spirit, apart from the Spirit, we either speak truth or we speak love. But since we don't do both, when you think about it, we're actually not doing either very well. If I'm speaking truth without love, my truth simply becomes self-righteous, angry venting. Right? How many people have heard, you heard say that? Well, I'm speaking truth. But it, it feels like just self-righteousness and anger. And, and without truth, our love really becomes one-dimensional and shallow, paper thin. You see, love rejoices in what is true. And so love and truth always go together, and truth is an expression of love. You can't have just truth without love. But we do it all the time because they're hard to bring together. Another example is how, how the Holy Spirit can help us love both justice and mercy. But without the Holy Spirit working in our lives so often, and we see this in our culture, our justice 
is merely a cry for vengeance. And our mercy is not much different than personal favoritism, which perverts justice even more. But because of the Holy Spirit, we can love both justice and mercy, and principally it's because we have the most beautiful picture of justice and mercy that there is, and that's the cross. Where on the cross, God held up his justice and a display of his mercy, and we see it most beautifully. Sin had to be judged so God could be just. But God's love for us, knowing that if he judged our sin the way we deserve, we would be destroyed. So what was the remedy? Come down and pay the price himself so that Jesus Christ, the God-man, could receive justice on our behalf and could reveal mercy freely for us. And the Holy Spirit, when we bear that fruit, we can have those happening together. You see, because the job of the Holy Spirit, as we said in the introduction, is to make us like Christ, and that is that fruit. And in Christ, there's this amazing combination of, Jonathan Edwards called it this, what do you say, the, the convergence of diverse excellencies. Gotta love the way the Puritans talk. The convergence of diverse excellencies that Christ could bring together qualities that we all need but cannot put together. But the Holy Spirit can help us. In Christ, there was infinite majesty and glory, yet humble and meek. Infinite justice and boundless grace. Transcendent self-sufficiency and yet complete trust and reliance on the Father, master of destiny, yet a servant of all, lion and the lamb, the son of God, son of man. And here's the thing, friends. He can affect the same change in you and I through the Spirit of God, through the Holy Spirit. That's the beauty of the new covenant. The Holy Spirit is like the ultimate life coach, but he just doesn't make your life better. He gives you new life. He gives you his life. So what is the fruit of the Holy Spirit? Well, it is love in, its, in its, all of its outworkings that goes up and out and in. The difference, though, is that between the gifts and the fruit is the gifts are the things that we do. And, and you might be totally gifted, but the fruit is what you are. And the more you are what you are, whatever your gifts are, you do those even better. But the less you are what you're supposed to be, the gifts don't mean anything. So let's not confuse them. And the last question we have to ask and answer is then, how can I have this fruit in my life? And to do that, friends, we need to get back to the foundational teaching that we have on the Holy Spirit that Jesus taught us. So I want you to go to John's Gospel, John chapter 15. John chapter 15. And, and keep in mind, as we taught you in the introduction, John 15 is right in between 14 and 16. And what's Jesus doing there? He's teaching us why the Holy Spirit's here in 14 and reinforcing it in 15, so uh, 16. So 15 is like the in between that. And it's a very powerful chapter. In the same way, if I, if I back up a little bit, I was thinking about my conversation with the elders this morning, to, I'll back up to point two, the, the, the gifts and the fruit. When you think about, so we're in the gospel, if you think about the New Testament epistles, when Paul is talking about the gifts of the Spirit in, in 1 Corinthians 12 through 13, Notice the structure is the same. Chapter 12, chapter 14, it's the gifts of the Spirit. If the fruit of the Spirit is love, what is chapter 13 of 1 Corinthians all about? Love. And so you even see in the structure of the New Testament epistles, he talks about gifts on both ends, but what controls that is love. 
And so we see the balance there. In the same way in John's gospel here, chapter 14, 15, 16, he's talking about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And in, in chapter 15 in the middle, he talks about how we can get that fruit. So let me read it to you. I'm going to read 11 verses. Jesus says this, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch of mine that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Verse 6, if anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. So you read these 11 verses, and, and abiding and fruit, they're all over the place. Eight different times Jesus talks about, actually more than eight times, but directly when he's talking about abiding, eight different times he's talking about the abiding relationship. Six times he's talking about bearing fruit. And notice the reason why Jesus is, is talking about this. We find it in verse 11. The reason Jesus says this, these things he's telling us, I've spoken to you, why? Notice that conjunction there, uh, that conjunction that showing um, ground or reason. I'm speaking to you these things that, so that, in order that, my joy may be in you. And why does Jesus want his joy in us? Look at that next phrase, starting with and. And that your joy may be full. Do you want that kind of joy? I ask that. It's a serious question. This is, the, this is the thing, man. If you grew up in the church and you read your Bible a lot, you, you can almost be desensitized. Jesus is saying, I'm going I'm to tell you how to have joy right here. Do you want Christ's joy to control your life instead of others' opinions or their approval or, or demands or pressures or your anger or your lusts or whatever? We're, we're like, here's the key. Do you want other joys to, to fill your life rather than maybe, maybe even your own desires and promises that promise you one thing and give you another. We don't have time to unpack all these. So I want to just briefly, as, as we close, talk about this abiding, because that's so important. Je Jesus says, abide in me. That's the key. So, so I want to give you an acrostic. It might be a little bit sloppy, but it may be helpful. It's a mnemonic device of what does it mean to abide in Christ, because that seems to be the key, right? Number one, start with a question. Are you reading his word? I mean, it doesn't get more simple than that. I cannot tell you as a pastor, we do a lot of counseling at this church, and I'm going to ask people, are you in the word? And more often times than not, they're not. Now, I don't mean slavishly as if just reading the words is, is magical. That's not what we're getting at here. But on a regular habit, is the word of God dwelling in you, right? Is, are you in the word? Are you reading the word? 
Not just when you need a little spiritual mojo when you're in a fix and you think somehow there's a superpower here. I'm going to read the Bible all of a sudden. That's not how that works. But you're just having the mind of God being exposed to it. Friends, and there's a lot of ways to do it. And, you know, one of the things I think is great, we all got these things now, right? There are Bible apps. Like my favorite Bible app is the uh, ESV Study Bible app. I'm popping it right here. Because... I wish I could tell you, I mean, here, here's the, I'm, I'm a human being, I, I forget, I get lazy, but this thing, I just tap it, it tells me what day I'm reading, gives me the chapters I got to read, and I tap it, and even gives me the chapters. Like, there's no reason not to be able to read God's Word on a daily basis. Friends, are you reading the Word? It just starts there. You can't abide if you're not even reading His Word. Secondly, believe what you have read, right? Believe what you have read, have faith in this own it make it your own and i just need to talk because i know in our postmodern culture doubt is cool right being kind of coolly aloof from things doubt especially in academia that is the key to learning things well that's foolishness if you know anything about epistemology you require to know anything requires a step of faith of belief or else you can't know anything it's only until you know something that you can actually doubt something so if you start with doubt you'll never know anything and you will never grow and that's just not a Christian perspective. That's just epistemology. Everything we know, we had to at some point believe and fill it in, and then we can bring doubt to it. My point simply is this. When you read the Bible, do you believe it? Do you believe it to own it? Now you could say, but, but there's, there's so many questions I have. I get it. I get it. But Jesus said, you want to believe. He says, did notice what he said in John 15, 7? Abide in me, and if my words abide in you, well, again, that can't happen unless you're reading it. That can't happen unless you're believing it to own it. Colossians 3.16 talks about, let the word of Christ dwell in you. All of these things work together. Are you reading his word and are you believing it? Friends, I'm not asking you how you feel about it. To get past that. Do you believe when God says, I love you, I can change you, I can make beauty from ashes? Do you believe it? Even if the evidence in your life is contrary to it, that's the first step of abiding, right? Second, or thirdly, I, involve yourself with his people. Involve yourself with his church, with his body. Why? Because the church is the body of Christ. It is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, the temple of God. And because of those things, it, it is the, the, the focal point of Christ's kingly activity on earth. Let me say something astounding to you. Just as Christ ministered through his physical body in his incarnation, the body, the church, is his, is his body now through you and I. And notice what we have as a church. We have a ministry that is towards God and glorifying him and worshiping him and making much of him. We have a ministry to the world and proclaiming the gospel and the hope of, of Jesus Christ to them. And we have a ministry to one another to make us more like Christ. By the way, did you notice that's the same structure that the fruit of the Spirit has? There's an upward dimension, an outward dimension, and an inward dimension. You see how God all over the world, there's all this, I mean, it's like the most hyperlinked book there is. All these things are mapping onto themselves. Involve yourself with the people of God either here or some other local church. Partner, commit, become involved. E, so are you reading his word? Believe what you read. Involve yourself. Deliberately trust, trust him with things that are important to you, and particularly through prayer. Deliberately trust him with things that are important to you. What's important to you, friends? Your kids? Your job situation? the uncertain future, 
Man, take those to him. Trust him with things that matter. Don't do stuff like, Lord, I pray for the peace of Israel. What the heck? I get it, but what kind of prayer is that? Lord, I pray for the peace in my family because we're broken. Because Joey is a jerk or Timmy wants more money or whatever. Be specific. Bring things that matter to him. And lastly, E, are you, are you reading his word? Do you believe? Are you involving yourself? Deliberately trust him with things that matter. And then, oops, did I not put that up earlier? E, engage others about Christ as you're abiding with him, either through evangelism and sharing the gospel, either through edification and discipling others, or if you're not a Christian or you don't know what to do, either through getting equipped. Either way, evangelism and edification or getting equipped, engage others in evangelism. Friends, you keep what you give away in the Christian faith. The more you give it away, the more you get it. And in an edification, disciple others. If you've been a Christian two years, guess what? You can disciple somebody who's been a Christian for one year. That's all it is, showing them what you're doing. And if you don't know how to do either, get equipped. Friends, that's why our Disciple Makers class is designed this way. We thought, what do Christians need to know by their first or second year of being a Christian? So we came up with this curriculum. If you don't know how to do evangelism, David, where are you at? David Bonsangu. Right over there. Stand up, David. He's teaching a six-week class on how to talk to people about Jesus. So we're like serving it right to your numbers. Thank you, brother. That's starting February 27th, right? And, and, and not only just sit in a class and learn about evangelism. Where's Tim? Tim or Jordan. Jordan's on. Tim, how often do you guys go to the spectrum just talking to people about Jesus? Um, okay, so go to the class. Don't be just a, a knowledge nerd. Actually go out and do it and learn how to do it, and your faith's going to grow. Or maybe that's not your thing, but maybe Tristan. Tristan, you here? Tristan, always going out, sharing the gospel, bringing backpacks to the homeless, loving on him. He and his wife. Do that. My point simply is this. In the context of a local church, there's always opportunities to learn and to grow. Evangelism, edification, teaching others, discipling others, or just getting equipped. Friends, Jesus, you heard it, you read it yourselves. He wants your joy to be full. For that to happen, his joy must be in you. In order for that to happen, you must see him as the only thing that can truly satisfy your soul. See, there's a progression here. God says, I want my, I want your joy to be full. The way this happens is my joy is in you. The way that happens is you see me as the most satisfying thing in this world. When that happens, it's amazing. I like Puritans. Here's one from Henry. Here's a quote from Henry Scogel. Uh, the life of God and the soul of man. Listen to this. Man, these guys were brilliant. The worth and excellency of a soul is to be measured by the object of its love. Friends, what do you love? Tell me what you love, and I can tell you pretty much everything about you. But he goes on. Listen to this. And I, I kind of updated it to more modern ears, but I also left some of the Puritan writing in there because it's so rich. The worth and excellency of a soul is to be measured by the object of its love. He who loveth mean and sordid things will by this become base and vile. But a noble and well-placed affection will advance and improve the spirit into a conformity with the perfections with which it loves. Wow. When you taste the fruit of the Holy Spirit, 
what he can produce in you, you will wonder why, you, why your hunger was satisfied in anything else. And friends, you will be ruined, ruined to the cheap trinkets of drink, sex, money, power, vain glory, pride, foolish, foolish pride, and you only want one more thing. You only want one thing, that's Jesus. But fruit takes time. It takes time, which is, again, why you need a church, because we do life together. And sometimes the sweetest fruit takes the longest time. And that's why Jesus says you have to abide. You have to remain, and we help each other remain. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the word. Lord, we thank you that faith is not about us fulfilling religious duty as much as it is just submitting to you working in our lives, changing our affections as we hunger for the right thing. Lord, we admit sometimes our desires are conflicting and, and we're not good at discerning what is the best desire. So we submit ourselves to you and we ask that you continue to transform us. Give us, Lord, an appetite for the things we should long for. Forgive us when we don't. Satisfy us when we do. And we thank you that you promised to do that. And so with that, we look forward to bearing fruit as a church. For your glory and our good, in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.